Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. To a growing number of Mexicans and Latino in the Americas, narco-traffickers have become iconic outlaws, glorified by musicians who praise their new models of fame and success. They represent a pathway out of the ghetto, nurturing an American dream fueled by addiction to money, drugs, and violence. From war photographer Shaul Schwartz comes Narco-Cultura, an explosive look at the drug cartel's pop culture influence on both sides of the border, as experienced by L.A.'s narco Corito, singer dreaming of stardom, and Juarez crime scene investigator on the front line of Mexico's drug war. We're joined today by the director of this remarkable film, Norco Cultura, Shaul Schwartz, a former, well, maybe not former, but a a war photographer uh, who, who had a career with the Israeli Air Force and has gone on to direct film. Shaul Schwartz, welcome to film school. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to talk to you guys. Well, thank you. And uh, boy, what a what a jarring experience uh, it is to watch Norco uh, uh, Cultura uh, in the sense that um, the reality of what is going on has been in the headlines, newspapers. We've been getting a lot of press reports on uh, the the drug uh, cartels and their influence in Mexico. But this is from a different perspective, a very sobering perspective. Tell me a little bit about your involvement, how you came to do uh, this uh, this documentary. Sure. I, I mean, I'm actually, as you mentioned, a photojournalist uh, at heart and background. And I, I've covered different stories in Mexico and started covering in 2008 uh, what people call the Mexican drug war. And I always, by the way, say <clears throat> the American-Mexican drug war because I always feel we're definitely part of it. Oh, yeah. And, um, and we, you know, I, for the first two years, I, I really covered a lot of the violence, particularly in Ciudad Juarez. But, um, and, and the pictures did actually get published in a lot of media, um, both in the U.S. and out, and different magazines from Time to Newsweek to GQ and Rolling Stones have all kind of portrayed the pictures. And at some point I was beginning to think, well, this is not stopping. Do I have anything more to say? And then I realized that there's something in the message of all these stories that is not hitting what I'm seeing on the ground. And my problem with it is that I think it gives a lot of people back here, back home, this idea that this war is very foreign. It's really influencing just gangs killing gangs. Here are these criminals fighting for turf. And it's true. The Mexican side of the drug war is a lot of turf fighting by cartels, but what I was seeing is how it's influencing millions and how we're all involved in it, how it's changing the policies, how it's shifting immigration policies, how many people are here in jail, and of course what I kind of chose to focus in narcocultura is how it's changing the hearts and minds of youth, how it's changing art and a, a music and a film scene. And that is kind of what I think was was my entry point to this project. After those two years of just taking pictures and, and concentrating on the violence, I just 
the, the way it actually happened, to tell a, a, a long story short, is I was photographing a story for National Geographic magazine, mm-hmm. and I woke up one day in Tijuana, Mexico, covering a murder scene, and then there was another unexpected murder scene, and I kind of staggered around that, and I had a appointment that night to go uh, meet for the first time Bukanas de Culiacan, the band. Mm-hmm. I'd heard about this music, but I didn't, you know, and I, and I went on YouTube and I saw the lyrics and like most people who see these lyrics, I was floored. But even that didn't really, I didn't really understand what it's about. But what happened that day in 210 is I ended up driving straight from the murder scene across the border into Riverside, maybe an hour and change away, and right into the club where people were chanting and singing these songs. And my jaw just dropped. I was angry. I couldn't believe it. I I was shocked at the fact that mostly Mexican-Americans, so close to this story, so close to the border, are what I saw back then were kind of dancing on the blood, if you will, celebrating this, pretending to be all narcos for a night. And I took pictures. I photographed this guy as he's performing with a bazooka and tried to show how people are singing along. But when I brought the pictures back to my editors, they didn't get it. Mm-hmm. They looked at the picture and they said, well, it's entertainment. There's a lot of entertainment about violence. What's so different? And I was trying to make them feel what I felt coming from a murder scene, having my clothes literally still smell of death. Um and it just didn't work in pictures. And that's when I understood that this is a film project. Mm. And that's also when I understood kind of the direction of it, that we are all connected, that this is influencing millions of people. And there should be a document that kind of shows that um, and kind of connects these different, uh, different approaches to this bigger story, if you will. Well, tell me, uh, from your point of view in, in doing this film, is there when you say you're watching the, this performance, uh, this musical performance, and you're seeing people there and they're they're singing the lyrics along with the performer? This very you're right. This very graphic, uh, you know, uh, sense of violence to it, with a pointing bazookas and rifles at the audience and them celebrating this. Is is there is the, are are these people that are celebrating this? Are they? What is their connection? I'm I'm trying to find when I think back on the early you days. Know, uh, in the early days of rap music, you had, you had you know Ice T and 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 mm-hmm. Snoop Dogg, and there were people. They were out of Long Beach, and this whole kind of thing. There was a there was it seemed more, um, more kind of uh, South Africa apartheid to me. To me personally, this is just my opinion on this. That there was yeah, no. there was a sense of isolation. Where what where's this sense of connection coming from when you're watching watching this? Well, there's a couple of things here. I, I think one the the connection to some degree to the beginning of hip hop and particularly gangster rap is true. I mean, first of all, in the most obvious way, uh, all these music and art trends are uh, glorifying an outlaw. Everybody kind of loves to. To, you know, to, to, to care about this outlaw and kind of understand how that life is. But I think a couple of things are very different. Um, one, in rap, we saw people really kind of spitting out rhymes about their hustle. And it was usually a street corner hustle. I was born in a bad hood. I'm selling a dime bag to get out of the hood. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, but 
Edgar Quintero, the singer in my film, or other narco-corrido artists, they're not singing about their hustle. They're trying to interview the most influential trafficker in a cartel that they could find. They write lyrics that he okays word by word, and only then do they get paid to record a song about him, which later, if it does well, will become a hit on American radio. That is very different. In a sense, it sets into uh, in, in, in this dance of really them acting as some courtyard gesture for the cartels, which is very different from rap. Um, in, yeah. terms, in terms of the people on the scene, in the clubs, following these bands, I think what we're seeing is, I, I want to be honest and I want people to... Because to, that night that I first met this music, I was very angry. But what I transformed from very quickly, and I hope viewers of the film will too, is that this is to some degree the price we pay for our constant failed war, for our failed policies. These kids that are out there celebrating this music, they're not all traffickers. They're not bad guys. 99% of them are hardworking Latinos who are there to celebrate a night as strange as that looks to us. And the next day they're going to go back to their job, to college, to high school, to whatever they they do. For them, this is some connection to their heritage. Mm. Mexican-Americans have long suffered and continue to suffer from a very clear and strong identity problem. Yeah. They're on one hand very Mexican, on one hand they're one of the immigration, the biggest immigration obviously in the country, but that also ties in the most and stays uh, typically the longest. And they're very hard workers. And so you're looking at these young kids and, you know, maybe their grandfathers and their fathers connected to Pancho Villa. But to these guys, a name like Chapo Guzman, the head of the Sinaloa cartel, means much more. And so they are listening to the news, they're seeing these things, they're hearing all this stuff, they're hearing everything that's connected, and they're celebrating it through these songs. You know, if they, in past years, you look 10 years back, these kids didn't fit in going to a hip-hop club, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's primarily a black venue, or an African-American venue. So these guys, this is kind of a perfect storm. Here is something that's a bad boy scene that you could party, that you could feel different, but you could feel among yourself. Mm-hmm. You could answer that identity question. So I think this is kind of where the grassroots for this phenomenon to rise in America. Now, keep in mind, narco-corridos have been around for a long time. They're not new. What is new is a genre that is extremely more violent and extremely more graphic. Um, and that is really a direct link to the actual violence on the ground. In 206, ex-president of Mexico, Felipe Calderón, declares a war on drugs, and the violence plunges uh, crimes to the sky. And this music getting so so much more graphic is directly linked to that. So this is what we've kind of seen, the American scene grow and reacting and becoming more violent and becoming more popular. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack in what you said, um, but I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Shaul Schwartz, and he's the director of Narco Cultura, a documentary that's coming out today as we speak. It's uh, December 6th, and um, 
opening up all over a lot of theaters in Southern California for a documentary. I don't think I've, I can't recall a documentary that's opened this wide in Southern California. Um, uh, <clears throat> I, I mean, congratulations, first of all, your Thank distributor you. has done a remarkable job. But is this part and part of this because there's such a, a, a large uh, Latino population and there's an expectation that this is of real interest to them? Uh, to go see, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and it was a big push by my side, which I'm I'm very glad and proud of Cinebine, the distributor that um, that responded. Um, I felt that this, for me, even just a, as an artist, as a director, I really wanted the people who are involved, the people who are again. If, if you ask me, we're all connected to the drug war because the majority of Americans does drugs, and at the end of the day. There's 80,000 dead on the other side by now, and uh, yeah. and we're all in this circular thing together. But the direct, clear link to this music, to this uh, culture that is being shaped by this war, are Latinos on both sides of the border, but primarily um, in uh, you know in, in the states close to the border, and in Calif- places like California and Texas is where we have a huge presence with this doc because. We believe, A, it's of interest to this people, and me as a director, I thought this is the most gratifying, if you will, for people involved in this scene that actually celebrate this music to actually see the doc, because the doc shows this music, but it also shows Richie Soto, a CSI worker, and Ciudad Juarez, the busiest CSI in the world at the time of the making of the film. And it really juxtapositioned kind of the glorification of a Corrido singer in the U.S. side versus somebody who's literally picking the bodies day-to-day right across the border in Ciudad Juarez. And I think it brings this haunting reality much closer to even Edgar Quintero, the singer in the film. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, he is born in L.A. He um, enjoys the safety of the United States. He would often ask me to look at material that I'm filling and ask me how it is down there because... He didn't know at the time. He right. doesn't live through this, which is kind of this very haunting reality. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the push of, of, of sending this documentary to places that are not usually um, where documentaries were open is, is definitely something we aim for and I'm really proud of. Um, it yeah. remains to see, of course, that the crowd will respond and go see the film. Yeah, and, and I want to go back to, to what you you were talking about uh, previously. I, I'm trying to, again, in, in, in the film, uh, I think uh, at least some of the people in the film are making the connection that the music of... Uh, is is tied to it it's it's of the tradition if that's such a if we can go that far to call it this the tradition of, of more in the line with uh, rap music was to the african american community but what is what strikes me and correct me if i'm wrong or if you think i'm wrong about this that um it a lot of what i saw in the film and and it was a distinct difference from what i remember of the of the early days of rap and hip hop where this seems to be a lot more of a patronage system, as you describe. Here's singers going to these king cartel heads and asking them basically for permission and or uh, approval in writing the mm-hmm. kind of music that we're talking about. Through and throughout the um, this horrid, terrible, brutal, vicious war that is taking place along the borders, a uh, border of America and 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 Mexico, where. 
the corruption seems to be so intransigent and so embedded in what's going on between the police and these and these traffickers that it seems like there's this whole system of with uh, with enough money um, it doesn't seem to matter although in and in defense of the people there and in, and also in light of what you you have in the film there is an outcry there's a a, a real moral and and uh, personal outrage and outcry among a lot of people who are just tired and, and sickened by Absolutely. the violence. I mean, people in, in, in cities like Juarez and in many other cities in, in yeah. today's reality of Mexico are extremely upset. They're not usually outcrying publicly out of fear and intimidation, yeah. but they are extremely upset of their towns. I mean, it might have always been bad, and this is not a new war, but there's very little doubt on how much worse it has gotten. So there is a huge outcry. I I, I think, and and that's also a little bit different on how this music and this culture is spreading out through the U.S. and Mexico. In Mexico, it's become illegal to play these songs on TV and radio. Um, Now, that's only... Uh, that's only helped their popularity, if you will. And this today, we obviously live in an internet social world, which is very hard to 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 act that way. And, and me being a journalist, I'm always uh, I'm always for freedom of speech, and whatever they they want to sing, they should be allowed to. But when you're looking at the popularity of this culture in the U.S., yeah. it does come to mind that these people do not have to live with it day to day. This is popular in Mexico, but there's also a huge movement against it that is extremely appalled by this. All right. Um, let's, so, you let's, know, when you wake up... Yeah, go ahead. Well, let's run through some of the numbers. You just mentioned um, the, the declared war by... Uh, is it called, not Calderon, who was uh, the, the current president who... Um, uh, the president in 06 that declared the war is yes. Calderon, and the oh, Pinyanete right. yeah. is the president that was sworn in um, right. this, this year. All right, when Calderon declared the war, the, the deaths in, in just in, in the film uh, Juarez, um, as an example, went from uh, is it like 600 a year, which is a lot, to... Suidad Juarez actually went from between three to 400 mm-hmm. murders to... 3,600, mm-hmm. so it, it, a thousand percent increase in three years from the war being declared to the height of the murder rage in 210. So from 207 to 210, we're talking about this crazy huge increase. Now, 300, and, and, and I don't remember the exact number, is still a violent city. Juarez has always kind of had a bad rep. Yeah. But when you get to a city that is, you know, less than a million point eight people and has 3,600 murders a year. That's more than L.A., Chicago, New York, and Miami put together well, in a tiny city. In a tiny city. Um, and, and by the way, by contrast, El, El Paso, which is on the other side of the Rio Grande, how many? Five murders five. that year. Safest city in the U.S. Now, keep in mind, these two cities are maybe a uh, hundred. Literally, they're, they're right next to each other. And El Paso has a huge uh, Mexican-American, Latino community. Yeah. You know, many families uh, actually have, like, a situation of, of, of part of the family living in Juarez, part living in El Paso. So that astronomical kind of difference, it, 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 it was a huge contrast. And to be honest, it was something that made me want to make this film. Right. Because the way our production worked, just physically, is we would always fly to El Paso get a cab to to the border. A cab would never want to 
that mostly back in the day they would never want to drive into Juarez, and I would literally walk with my soundman across the bridge. And it was these 50 steps of going from the safest city of the U.S. into what was then the homicide capital of the world, and it was so haunting. Yeah. And it was so powerful, and what was really powerful about it is it wasn't a situation that lasted a week or two. It was this ongoing nightmare that everybody that was there knew, but at the same time, everybody has gotten so accustomed to it that it was just kind of a matter of fact. Yeah. And I think that really haunted me. And I, I think as a photojournalist that could go into these, is trained and to go into these conflict zones, I realized that this documentary could be unique in a way that it will cover the culture, which I did, but also in just kind of hitting it hard and really going in. I, I didn't want to educate. I felt that a lot of wars, a lot of uh, films about the drug war has been kind of talking heads and expert. And I wanted a verite, hard-hitting film that really takes you into the drug war so people will understand what's happening right here. Not in the Middle East, not a million miles away, right here in a direct link to our policies, 50 steps away from the safest city in the U.S. Joel Shores, uh, you you have been you've been a photographer in war situations before. Um, how did it compare to uh, what you've seen in the past? Um, what was different? What it's was a the same conflict? Um, you yeah. know, if you take conflicts like Afghanistan or that I've covered, or or conflicts like the Israeli-Palestinian and the Israel-Lebanon war, sure, they are incredibly intense, scary conflicts to cover, but as a journalist, you um, you embed or you are with or you trust one side, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, whether you like, by the way, what they're doing politically or not doesn't matter. It's not those guys on the in, mm-hmm. on the ground that that choose that they are just doing what they do, mm-hmm. and um, and sure, it's scary, but you, there's a lot of trust. Mexico is very different. Um, I spent three and a half, four years with a CSI unit. But like any other guy who actually works in the CSI unit, I never trusted anybody, and I never talked publicly because you never know who is who. Because there's what they call hokones, hawks, or informants of the cartels everywhere. Mm. I mean everywhere, in the CSI unit, in my hotel, in the restaurant, in the 7-Eleven. So it's a very different conflict um, to cover as a journalist. You know, I've, I've seen local journalists getting killed, uh, Mexico is a place you could get killed not for publishing, but just for knowledge, which is very different again. So unlike a situation in Afghanistan that it might be scared, you might be going down a road that could blow up any second, you might have fire open at you from different, but you trust these group of people. In Mexico, there is not too much you could trust. Hmm. And so it becomes, if you will, more a mind game, this kind of, how do you dig deep? What can you ask? What do you want to know? What do you absolutely do not want to know? And there was plenty of stuff that you could not go in and just say, well, this is my right. I'm going to be an investigative journalist. Mm-hmm. No, you're going to get killed if you do that. You're going to hurt your contact. So it was a very different game. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely a patient. You need a lot of patience. We've, we've made more than 20 trips to Juarez to make this movie. Um, for everything we filmed, um, for, we, we'd always say that for every, ten, for every ten times we go out, we actually film one. <laughs> and I don't know the exact statistics, but they weren't pretty. Um, they were not pretty. Um, mm. So 
It was challenging, and usually we we pretty quickly were quite aware of what we can do. Mm. For example, and this this comes to a surprise, and some people ask me, "How did you live with that?" But I, we just had to. We never took a specific case, a murder case, or in the CSI, and said, "Well, let me open the file and investigate yeah. this case." Yeah, I noticed that. This is just out of reach. Yeah. This would immediately endanger me, my people, and the CSI people, Richie primarily, but all of them. So there are limitations in being able to cover this that are very different from other conflicts. Yeah, that's what I, that's what the, the CSI unit seemed to be sort of functionaries of this insanity. They just seemed to be cleaning up the mess. And I know that's an allegation that's made in the, in the film by other people, but uh, it just, uh, they just. I think that- Go ahead. That's really what haunted me. That that was what became the engine of making that part of the movie, that side. Because I initially joined the CSI unit because I thought, for one, it was a great way to cover the violence. I was running around with my own car with local journalists, which was dangerous, scary, and getting to some of the places. And then I said, well, these guys in the white van, they pick up everybody. I wish I could get in that white van. It's like a magic carpet flying around. Mm-hmm. And it was the best way to get to the sites, and maybe more importantly, it was the best way to get out in one piece. Um, But it really, really quickly became a very different tale because I saw exactly what you described. I saw these guys doing a very meticulous job, but I knew all along that 97% of these folders that they're collecting of these crimes were not even investigated. And it just haunted me how somebody could do this job so meticulously day after day for not high pay, put his life on the line, and yet it's all kind of a show, if you will. It doesn't really mean much because nobody's going to try and solve these crimes with information they collect. And we're not talking, by the way, about making sandwiches in a kitchen. We're talking about murder cases. That yeah. You know, this is like a real... And I think that became very haunting for me, and I think I wanted to kind of understand the mindset of the CSI guys. And, you know, it's very easy to kind of dismiss. Obviously, there's a lot of corruption in Mexico. There's corruption here, too, when it comes to the drug war in many places. But, you know, it's very easy to just say, oh, everything is corrupt down there. That's true, but there's a lot of people who are not corrupt. Richie Soto, the guy I followed, I'd vouch for him any day. He's a beautiful man. He loves his city. He chose his job out of all the right reasons. Yet to use his own words, as time went by in the film, he became part of the system, what he would call. He understood his limitations of what is really available to do. And I think that's the real culture. That's the real corruption I was going to, that even if you're a good guy, and there are many good guys, it's almost, it's near impossible to really have a positive effect. Because you're always looking your back on who's the dirty guy, who's going to do this. What am I expected? What can't I cross? What's this imaginary line? And to me, that became a real interesting idea. How do you keep coming to work? How do you keep caring when what you do doesn't matter? And and what what has to be frustrating, by the way, we're speaking with uh, Shoal Shores, Shores uh, the uh, director of the new documentary, or the documentary just coming out today, uh, Narco Cultura, comes out in theaters throughout Southern California. Um, this is uh, December 6th, and it will be rolling out, I'm certain, across other parts of the country as well. Um, in addition to the frustration that he would have obviously and naturally felt uh, that even if he did everything right, there was no guarantee he wasn't going to get killed just for doing what he did. 
just the sense I had was that he could keep his head down and do a, uh, do it right, but uh, no guarantees here. I mean, there but, are no guarantees. I mean, this is uh, this is a dangerous part of the world, and that was uh, not a not a the safest job in town either, as uh, someone says in the film. Uh, we're not working in a flower shop here. Well, but just to put this in perspective, I just want our audience to understand there's this number of 3,700 people killed in a year in one city. Um, that's 10 a day. That's more, it's as many people as, uh, as died, American soldiers who died in, in the war in Iraq in eight years. It's, uh, uh, it's unbelievable. It really is. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's, it, it, again, what haunted me is I flew to the safest city then in in america and walked literally across a bridge into this hell um and, and i guess another thing you asked me before about what's different and what's similar to other conflicts what's really different is when we went to the afghanistan there was a lot of journalists there there was a lot of coverage there was a bond of us you know when you when you do work this kind of job and this kind of beat you usually end up at least starting that, there's three or four hotels in this hot spot that all these journalists are going to go to and work with local fixers. When I came to Juarez in 2010, there's yeah. nobody. Yeah. There was nobody, and this was right here. And yeah. it's just unacceptable that yeah. we've... And I think it, it is... It's not a mistake. It's something... You know, this is an issue that's closer to us, but somehow we've been able to tuck it away. It's Mexico's drug war. That sounds far. Um, I always remind people, you know what? $50 billion a year is what funds us when they come out of here. Yeah. The guns are what kill the people, and 95% of them all start here. It's a very circular... Yeah. I was going to bring this up, and I think it's an important aspect in your film. Really, it, it, to me, it's the elephant in the room in, in, in this film, is that... Um, the 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 cast this the shadow cast by the Yankees and all of this is that we consume massive amounts of cocaine and marijuana every year and this is what we want we want this we don't care how we get it apparently we don't and and only recently have we begun to kind of sober up about the reality of what we're doing in terms of wanting to to ingest marijuana and cocaine and we're beginning to come to some more reasonable accommodation but. The fact remains is this is huge money. And I've always been of the mind that, you know, you can attack, beat up, arrest, in jail, all the underlings. But it's these very, very well-connected, plugged-in cartel people that are dealing on a, on a ver- an, uh, barely disguised level with all of the major banks, all the major... Uh, you know, you name it. The industries that help fuel this this system are well known and respected in this country, and yet no one. I, w- I remember Noam Chomsky saying one time that if you want to put an end to the drug war, don't send the, the Delta Force team into the jungles of Colombia. Send them into Wall Street. Send them into Manhattan, into the boardrooms of these large banks. I remember Wells Fargo accidentally laundered like fifty billion dollars in drug money. <laughs> Right? I mean, they say, oh. Like they're accidental. In yeah. The, yeah. But, uh, our bad. Listen, we, we all literally have a part of this. Yeah. Yeah. So many of us are going to try drugs, and yeah. you know what? That's yeah. not, that's fine or not. The yeah. point yeah. is, that's not going to go away. Yeah. You could edge that. You could educate. You can change the graph slightly right or left. Yeah. 
But, you know, and and I always argue to people who say, well, what's the other way? We have to push law enforcement. It's the only way to stop this. And I always say, you know what? We've just tried for two different administrations, by the way. This administration has just poured more money and more guns towards trying to solve this problem. We've just tried this, not only in the last administration, but since Nixon. And what have we gotten? Look at cocaine. If, If this drug war was by any means successful, you'd think that cocaine would get more and more expensive because it obviously should be harder to get. Well, it's gotten cheaper by the year. That means it's not harder to get. On the contrary, because if a commodity was harder to get, the price would go up. So we have almost 80,000 dead since 2006. We have more than half a million people in jails here. We're shifting immigration policies because of this. We've closed up a border. We've done, we're doing, you know... Um, Border Patrol has tripled their uh, budget, so has uh, Customs. We've put literally 7 to $8 billion in the fence. And what have we done? What's the fruits of any of this? So I I always remind people, this, you you have to understand, it's a big market. And to quote um, Calderon, and I don't uh, quote uh, (laughs) the ex-president of Mexico very very oftenly, but he once said... um, it's not easy to be the neighbor of the richest and biggest drug addict in the world. Yeah. And, um, and then we have, to look at, we have to look at this a little bit. You know, if we can't change that fact, how do we change the collateral damage that we cause? Because part of the art and the culture that I show in the movie, which uh, of people singing along, of people treating these cartels, which are the cancer of Mexico and to some degree the cancer of this country, um, They're growing out of our failure to really adopt. They're growing out of us continuing to try and solve a problem that is unsolvable with guns and money by throwing more guns and money at it. That's amazing. It is. This is just, it's such a powerful film. I I strongly recommend anyone listening to the sound of our voices to run out and see this film. It's such an insight and... um, and at and at great personal risk, I, I just there are certain things in this film that I I was trying to imagine what was going through your mind, um, and I can't imagine what was going <laughs> through your mind. At certain, so uh, it, it's uh, at again um, the film is uh, Narco Cultura, and uh, Shual, thank you so much and uh, um, for for coming on, and thank you so much for the film. Uh, um, all the best. Are you uh, are you working? On, I hope you're working on something maybe about a florist or something, a documentary about a florist. <laughs> My mom asked me, can the next documentary be about the growth of flowers? <laughs> um, I'm working on two new projects. One is uh, one is completely different. It's actually a family story, very safe and very, uh, very local. And one is actually uh, goes back to trafficking. I'm very early on, but it will be connected to the animal trafficking out of Africa. So. I like taking the viewer further so he feels closer, kind of thing. Oh, that's, so, a great, uh, that's a great way to say yeah. it. And, and, and obviously you're following your own heart in terms of, of these projects. And, um, Absolutely. It, and this is so, again, I'll, I'll restate this. This is so important. And as you just said a few minutes ago, we don't know anything about this. All we know is, is Mexico screwed up, fail, almost failed state. We don't care why. We need to know why. We, there are certain things that we are responsible for, and this film is a terrific primer 
and an insight into a world that we rarely, if ever, get an opportunity to see. And so uh, for that alone, thank you. And, and it's just it's a terrific film. So thank you for coming on Film School. Thank you so much. I appreciate everything. Thank it's, you. Again. Take care. All right. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.